G'day. My name's Todd, if we haven't met, and Gerald, if we have. Um, <laughs> I've got a Bible here, which is not mine, because sad news, I've misplaced my NIV. But what I do, I go to the lost property, and I found this monster, and Ben Thomas, come see me at the end. <laughs> Getting stuff done. Um, interestingly here, we, we get very explicitly that the Holy Spirit teaches us in God's Word as we read it. And so I'm going to pray now that God would do that for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word and we pray that by your Spirit you would be teaching us tonight, revealing your Son to us, teaching us about his sacrifice that we might be um, taking on his sacrifice for us and entering into your presence. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we're talking about guilt. Guilt. Now, guilt can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Uh, guilt can be quite trivial at times, like the guilt you get for having an overdue library book and balance, perhaps, if libraries still exist. Last one that happened to me was at uni, and I never went back to the library again. Such, such was the guilt, right? Um, and maybe it's stopping for only two seconds at a stop sign instead of three. I know you all stop for three, but sometimes I do two seconds. Um, it might, sometimes it is trivial and it impacts your life in some way, uh, but often just for a split second. But more often than not, guilt can be a deep and dark and horrible feeling, can't it? It churns the stomach, makes you feel sick. Uh, it's the kind that springs up from a deep hurt or a deep regret or a sense of shame about something? Have you ever experienced this kind of guilt? Now, guilt and innocence is a strange thing in our society today. Uh, we don't typically respond well to being told that we're guilty or, or done something wrong by someone out there. So how many of us have written back to the Revenue State Department to say, no, 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 that parking ticket was wrong? Or how many of us flare up in defence when someone tells us that we've done something wrong? How dare they? Now, how many of us love to explain our guilt away? <laughs> it's not my fault. It wasn't that bad. Or I was just hangry. I didn't mean it. Um, or they made, you made me do it. You know, that's how we explain our guilt. And when it comes to morality, we've thrown God out the window. And as we throw God out the window, we throw an objective measure of morality out with him. And so instead we set our own standards, our individualistic society standards, and we defend our innocence to everyone out there. I'm independent, you can't judge me, I don't need your forgiveness. Those kinds of sentences. And just by the by, that is an extremely dangerous form of egotism uh, that we're growing up in because of how it comes when we relate to our God. We need to repent of thinking of ourselves as self-righteous because there is a God. It's the fundamental reality of our creation, that there is a God, He is your creator. And so there's actually an objective moral standard, a standard which I've fallen short of, that you have all fallen short of, and you are guilty along with me. And there's no department that you can write to about this. You will stand before God one day and have to give an account for your life. And it won't bode well for you. But that's someone else telling you, yeah, you're wrong, you're wrong. And I get the feeling that 
I barely have to prove your guilt to you. Why? Because deep down, I reckon, we all know that we're guilty. We feel it. We defend our innocence to to people out there, but deep down, do we really think we're innocent? No matter what I say to people out there, I know that I'm often my worst own judge. Probably the same for you too. You see, guilt for us in our society seems to come less from out there telling me and more inside. The guilt I feel is from inside, it's from within. I know I've done something wrong and I feel that. And we call this experience our conscience being pricked by something. Uh, And so we carry around this guilty conscience about all these things in our life. Um, And they flare up in whether it's a place, whether it's a person, something flares this guilt up in us all the time. Have you ever spoken badly about a close friend and wished you could take it back? The words go, ah, I want to grab them and pull them back. Or have you been in a group or even a group chat where someone you love has been spoken poorly of and you didn't do anything about it, didn't say anything? If you have, you know how terrible that feeling can be. Wondering if they'll ever find out, wondering if he'll come back to get you. But despite all that, it's just the regret, the guilt, the shame. And it can be long, long, long suffering. Deep down, we all feel guilty. Don't you reckon? We all feel guilty. And it's a huge problem because a guilty conscience can easily destroy relationships, ruin them. It may be a certain friendship or relationship for which you carry around all this guilt for. And it takes you a few years to realise it, but after a few you realise consciously, unconsciously, whatever it is, that friendship isn't what it used to be. What happened? I'm carrying around guilt for something. But there is a guilt which we all share in common, which destroys the most significant relationship that you could possibly imagine. It's the guilt we have before our God. It's our sin. God has furnished us with a knowledge of him and his will to some degree. He's given us a conscience about it, an awareness of it at some level. We deep down know that he exists and we deep down Know that we've fallen short of his standard. We've fallen short of our own standards. How much more his, our God's. And that is a massive problem because it destroys any chance of a relationship with him, our God, our creator, the giver of life and all good things. And it prevents us from coming into his presence. And so what we need most desperately is a way back to God in relationship with him. And for that to happen, we need the removal of our guilt, the cleansing of our guilty conscience. Friends, there's good news tonight in this passage because there is a way back to God. There is a way to have your guilt removed and your conscience cleansed. Wouldn't that be awesome? To you, if you don't call yourself a Christian, that is, you're not a follower of Jesus. Um, Bring your guilt out tonight. Bring it to God tonight. Have ears open to hearing the right way to have it washed away and taken away. And if you call yourself a Christian but you find it hard to be around Christians, hard to be around your Christian friends, hard to show up here at church regularly, perhaps you have a sense of guilt as you even approach this place or the relationships here, 
you hang your head down on the way in. I had an old mate of mine used to joke, he, he wore a cap to church and he pulled it right down, one of the really bent over ones, right down, all the way down. Uh, he'd come into church late, sit up the back, arms crossed. Um, he was hiding from God, he said. I'm hiding from God because I'm afraid that if he sees me here, he'll strike me down dead on the spot. If you feel inadequate like that, if you, if you, feel, if you notice that you bounce in and out of church life, unable to stick, if you find it hard to open your Bible each day and pray to God, if you feel like a phony when you serve each week, if you can't open your mouth and praise God during singing, if you carry around with you a heavy heart and a downcast soul, these may be evidences that your conscience isn't clear, that it's guilty. And it may be time to see that you've been going around going about cleaning it in the wrong way. Do you want that conscience cleared, that guilt removed, that burden lifted? You betcha. And so listen up. The good news is that there is a way to be brought back to God, but there is a right way and there is a wrong way. And the Holy Spirit really wants us to see this, that there's a right way and a wrong way. And the author of Hebrews, along with the Spirit, really wants us to draw near to God the right way way this one I think it was the right way the only way so that we can know that we are right with God with full assurance and so that we can approach God and draw near to him with confidence and so chapter 9 have it open there with you because the author starts with the wrong way to God and he teaches us this by a history lesson through the Old Testament, religious practices, particularly the sacrificial system. And at the end of it, he concludes this sentence. It's a bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to slow down. It's there for you to read. The Old Covenant sacrifices cannot bring people into God's presence because they are not able to clear people's, people's consciences. That's a big sentence conclusion and he draws it at the end of the first section of verses that you might see there, 1 to 10. So take a look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this, that is the old covenant sacrifices, we'll come to that, that the way into the most holy place, that is God's presence, has not yet been disclosed. Why? Halfway through verse 9, because the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. And so here's the summary again. The old covenant sacrifices cannot bring people into God's presence because they were not able to clear people's consciences. That's a conclusion, but let's start back at the top of the chapter and see how he gets there. Um, from verses 1 to 5, we, we get him talking about the tabernacle. And a few weeks ago, we were reminded that the tabernacle is the portable place that represented God's presence among his people, the Israelites. Uh, the Israelites were moving around the desert and they took this tent with them. It must have taken a long time to set up. Um, and when they finally stopped in the promised land, they built the same kind of thing, same kind of structure, out of stone this time, called it the temple in Jerusalem. But this is the one when they're moving around. It was a massive tent with multiple layers and I got this picture for you. And I want you to appreciate, I didn't find this picture, I made this picture. That's pretty good. I'm pretty stoked. I kind of ran out of steam at one point and 
sunk way too much time in this because I'm really not making a big point. But there it is. There's, there's the tabernacle. It's really big, 23 metres by 46 metres. All the little tents on the outside are where Israel would live and camp. And this is like symbolic that God is in the centre. His presence is there. You've got the outer big kind of court of the tent and then you've got this inner, inner two places. And that's what he describes uh, in the first few verses. So you can look at verse 2. A tabernacle was set up. It said, in its first room were the lampstand. There it is. Yes, got it. And the table with its consecrated bread. Table for bread. Should have said consecrated bread there. And the room was called the holy place. That's the first room. But the author's more interested in the next room, the one in white. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place. What makes this room so special? Verse 7, only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. The room behind the second curtain, the inner room, the place that was called the Most Holy Place, was where symbolically God's presence resided, where people met with God. But it was only the high priest who met with God on behalf of the Israelite people, and that only once a year. And so notice the requirements of the high priest to get there from verse 7. It says, never without blood. Now, blood comes up a lot in this chapter. He comes back to it again and again. So what's with the blood, you might ask? Never without blood refers to the old covenant, the Old Testament um, sacrificial system. We read about it in Leviticus 16. It's a great chapter for a bunch of it. Um, what the Hebrew author keeps referring to is the Old Covenant. Now, he comes back to this blood a lot of time and he teaches us three purposes of this blood and we're going to go through them quickly. The first is that we learn that the blood from the sacrifices was to symbolise the initial establishment of the covenant itself. And he uses an illustration in verse 16, so I don't need one. Let's read it. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who has made it is living. Do you hear what's being said? It's the same today. If you write out a will, this person will have that. That will have that. It doesn't take effect until you die. It's not like people can come grab all your stuff as soon as you put pen to paper, right? Now, they only gain possession of the things when you die. Your death brings that covenant and that agreement into place. And the author says it's the same for God's covenant with Israel. Verse 18, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood, blood being the symbol of death. Verse 19, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. The sacrifice of the animal meant its death. The blood symbolised the death of the animal. And this symbol was used to show the establishment of God's covenant with Israel and remind them of that. Second thing we learn is that the blood from the sacrifices was used to symbolise being cleaned and being made holy. Take a look at verse 13. It says, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean to sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. And in verse 21, skim down there, in the same way he, that's Moses, sprinkled 
with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And so the blood symbolized a cleansing of all sorts of objects in the tabernacle, but also of the high priest himself to clean him. And that was super important because the high priest was going to go enter and meet with God's presence, the clean and holy God. And without that outward cleansing, he would die in the presence of a holy God. Just like we saw in in Leviticus 16, uh, Aaron's two sons who were killed, consumed by the fire of God's presence. Can't enter into his presence lightly. Finally, we learn that the blood used in sacrifice was essential for there to be forgiveness. There's a very important principle he, he sets up, the author. So verse 22, In fact, the law required that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now that teaches us a lot about sin and God's justice. When God established a covenant with his people, Israel, it came with a law and a rule. The law, the Ten Commandments, obey these things. And the rule was, if you obeyed, you'd be blessed by God. And if you disobeyed, you'd be punished by God. The punishment for sin since the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, is ultimately death. And because of God's justice and the covenant that he set up, he cannot leave that punishment unpaid. He couldn't simply forgive without transgressing his own justice, his own covenant. There had to be blood. But do you see the problem? Because there must be death if God is able to forgive justly. But if everyone who is guilty of sin pays the death penalty, who is there left to forgive? No one. We have a problem. And so to meet this problem, God provided a way for Israel to pay this punishment death by killing an animal instead of facing death themselves. They'd kill this animal, take its blood, which represents its death, um, sprinkle on themselves as well as many other things, so that the death of the animal covered them, so that they could receive forgiveness. But it wasn't a long-lasting forgiveness, was it? They had to do this a bunch, again and again, says the author of Hebrews, year after year the same rituals to seek temporary forgiveness of sins. Now, what do we learn from all of this so far? Uh, First, God is holy and people are sinful. The very shape of the tabernacle, the way it was set up, the careful requirements to meet with God are all an illustration to show us how unapproachable God is in his holiness, how perfect he is, unapproachable because we are so not perfect which means second we need God to take the lead on how we are to approach him now we can all too easily forget who we are forget who God is and think to ourselves that we can make up the rules of engagement I'll come to God when I want how I want not the other way around it's I heard this one this morning, so I'll take this from Jez. Thank you, Jez. But it's like, imagine approaching King Charles. We have a king now, amazing. Um, and you're like, I think we, we kind of all feel like we could just rock up there and say g'day, because we don't have a great idea of authority, right? So we'd rock up, we'd get on a plane, head over to London, 
get to the gates, they'd let us through, of course. We'd go into the court and then upstairs into, I'm, lo- I'm losing the name, I'm delaying, not castle, but palace. Palace? Right on. Uh, <laughs> they're, all, they're all magical words, aren't they? Uh, and then we'd waltz in and we'd sit down with Chuck and we'd crack open a beer and be like, cool. But if we actually tried it, what would happen? Wouldn't go so well. Uh, we wouldn't even get past the gate. We wouldn't even get past the guy standing in front of the gate. We can't just dictate the way we relate to the king. How much more can we not just do and dictate the way we relate to God? He has set it up. And this sacrificial system of the old covenant is a chilling reminder that relating to the God of the universe is no joke and no game. It's on his terms. Thirdly, this system gives us a great window into the very heart of our God. This God, our God, desires to forgive and wants people to approach him and draw near. I don't know if that fits your picture of God. He is completely free. (laughs) He doesn't need us in the way that we need him. He doesn't need us at all. We need him for everything, for life, breath, for everything. And add to this our outright rejection of him. He doesn't need us and we reject him and ridicule him. And yet, he goes to all this effort to set up a system to forgive his people, to draw them as near as possible while satisfying the justice of his law. Now, that's quite something if you think about it. And I hope at that point, if we keep thinking about it, you realise the amazing news of the gospel. Without spoiling the rest of the chapter, how much more do we know of God's desire to bring people to himself, that people would draw near, that he'd love to give forgiveness than giving up his only son? That's really quite something. Now we could continue uh, reflecting on what we've seen so far, but we must move on because above all, the author wants us to, to teach us one thing in particular. Do you remember? That all of these old covenant sacrifices cannot bring people, cannot bring you into the presence of God because they're not able to clear people's consciences. The repetition of this practice over and over again, year after year, was all an illustration given to us by the Holy Spirit to teach us that the way to God is hidden because of people's guilty consciences. Verse 10 says, They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washes, external regulations applying until the time of the new water. External, which... The end of verse 13 tells us, only gives an outward clean. Not what is required, which is an inward clean of the conscience before God. And so around and around they went, year after year, stuck. God's people were stuck. Able to relate to him in part, in a shadowy kind of way. But ultimately stuck in their sin, which barred them from living in God's presence. Now, before we move on from the wrong way to the right way to approach God, um, it's worth noting that the old covenant, the, the old covenant sacrificial system was religion's best possible foot forward to gain access to God, the best possible chance 
The system was designed by God himself. You see, it isn't just the old covenant sacrifices which can't bring us to God. That principle is universal. Are you anti-religion? Is religion holding our world back? Great. So is God. He is anti-religion. This is anti-religious teaching. The gospel is an anti-religion. Because any religious sacrifices, ready? here's a bunch of them, moral behaviour, behaving a certain way, prayer, giving, serving, singing. There's a, there's a famous Pentecostal leader who said, we're going to praise our way into the presence of God. Baptism, communion, penance, marriage, death, believe it or not, festivals, feasts, tri- trances, Meditation, art, dance, pilgrimages to holy places, prophecy, speaking in tongues, fasting. You name it, none of it can get us into God's presence because none of it can clear our conscience and none of it can remove our sin. The way is shut to every kind of effort that we could even imagine and invent And so where are we left? That the message so far is clear as day, but it's devastating. But if the old covenant sacrifices won't cut it, we require something greater. Verse 23, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. If we're really to have our conscience cleared, if we're really to enter God's real presence in heaven, then we're going to need a bigger boat. We're going to need a better sacrifice. But before we move on to that better sacrifice, it's worth me just reminding us why sacrifice is so important. Remember verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The punishment for sin is death. And the whole sacrificial system illustrates for us that that punishment of death has to be paid if there's going to be forgiveness. And the old covenant for for hundreds of years, thousands of years, provided a way for Israel to pay that penalty without dying themselves. But in the new covenant that God establishes by Jesus' blood, provides us a way for our guilt, our sin, the punishment for all of that to be paid for by not our death, but Jesus' death his death covering us so that we can have forgiveness it is to that sacrifice Jesus's sacrifice that the author keeps drawing our attention to in the rest of the passage effectively saying over and over again Jesus's sacrifice is infinitely greater than the old covenant sacrifices again and again and again and again he does that by comparing the two the old covenant sacrifice and Jesus sacrifice and he compares Four things, and I've turned them all into P's, and one of them's a little bit stretchy, but so you can remember it, right? Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely greater than the old covenant sacrifices because of, number one, the place it gains us access to. Number two, the person that is offered in sacrifice. Number three, the purification that the sacrifice achieves. And four, the permanency of the sacrifice. Thank you. Thesaurus.com. Now, let's take them one at a time. First, Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely greater than the old covenant sacrifice because of the place 
it gains us access to, starting all the way back at verse 1. Have a read. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Where did the high priest enter by the sacrifice made in the old covenant? An earthly place. The sanctuary was an earthly one. True, it was a place set up for God to meet with his people by his covenant, his word. But it was an earthly place, a humble tent to be precise, made and set up by human hands. Now tell me, if the potency of God's presence and holiness was to truly reside somewhere, would it be characterised as earthly, physical, man-made tent? (laughs) No. It would be heavenly, spiritual, not made by humans. So let's take a look at the contrast from verse 11. But, there's a contrast word, when Christ came as high priest to the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Why is it greater and more perfect? Keep reading. That's not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. In other words, not earthly, entirely other than earthly. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one, no. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. As we heard a few weeks back, the earthly sanctuary, the the tabernacle, was only a copy of the true sanctuary. The true sanctuary is the greater, more perfect one. And Jesus, our high priest because of his sacrifice, went into that one, heaven itself, to appear before God's presence truly. Jesus' sacrifice is greater because it gains us access into heaven itself, God's very presence truly. Second, Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely greater than the old covenant sacrifice because of the person that is offered in sacrifice. Verse 12, this is where it gets stretchy. He did not enter by means of the blood or goats, or calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now, what do you notice about the person that's offered in sacrifice? Whereas the old covenant sacrifices were made with bulls and goats and heifers and calves, not people, you got me. The sacrifice of the new covenant is Jesus' own blood. He's a person. And let me underline the significance of this. Humans are more significant than animals, infinitely more significant than animals. A man is infinitely more valuable than a calf. Now that may seem simple, uh, but I'll tell you what, we can get very confused by this these days. Mankind is made in the image of God, not animal kind. But more than this, God is infinitely more valuable than a human. Jesus, in offering up his own life, actually offers up God's own blood. Does that sound a bit off to you? You don't believe me? You can write down Acts 20, verse 28, and chase it up later. Because of the person being sacrificed, Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely times two... Times two times times of infinity, infinity. That's not a word. Infinity, right? 
more valuable than the old covenant sacrifices, which leads to the points three and four of the comparison. Because of that, third, Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely greater than the old covenant sacrifices because of the purification it achieves. In the old covenant, the high priest offered a sacrifice to cleanse both himself uh, and the people of their sins in verse 8. And we already saw verse 9 and 13 that these ceremonial washes would only be temporary and only be outward. But Jesus' sacrifice is so much better, so much more valuable, and it does so much more. Have a look at verse 12. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Verse 14, or or maybe we'll pick it up halfway through verse 13 actually. Um, Who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. Verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who is the who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. In verse 26, but he appeared once for all at the culmination of ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' sacrifice is so much better, so much more valuable and achieves so much more. The purification it achieves is infinitely greater than the old covenant. And lastly, Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely greater than the old covenant sacrifices because of its permanency. Whereas the old covenant priests had to offer the sacrifice again and again, I love that language, again and again, year after year, Jesus' sacrifice was once for all never to be repeated. Notice how the author underlines this in verse 25 on. Nor did he, Jesus, enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But, there it is again, rather or instead, Jesus has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. My friends, this is great news. (laughs) Jesus' sacrifice was his life for yours. His death instead of your death. His sacrifice was once for all to do away with sin. That is to completely cleanse us of sin, past sin that we have huge regret and guilt and shame about, gone. The sin that we do every single day in the present, gone. The sin that we haven't even committed yet in the future, gone. Once and for all, one and done, there is no sin left outstanding. He died once, which means he's gained us a clear conscience and access into heaven itself, into the very presence of God. To draw near to God, to enter his throne room with confidence. Only Jesus' sacrifice can cleanse our conscience and draw us into God's presence. 
only Jesus' sacrifice. We can only draw near to God because of Jesus' sacrifice. I cannot stress this enough because somehow some of you are going to go home thinking, I reckon this other thing could do it. No, no. The only thing is Jesus' sacrifice. Only by Jesus' sacrifice is it possible to come to God. Listen, please, to the Holy Spirit's lesson here. The entire sacrificial system, all of religion, the best it could have been, was to show that that way to God is not a way at all. All of our efforts can be said to be showing us that we cannot get to God that way. It's only by Jesus' sacrifice that we can come to God. And so let me speak to you, guilty creature, if you don't follow Jesus. How how can you restore your relationship with God? Think about that. You might come up with a list of things. No, it's only by taking on Jesus' sacrifice for you, his death for you, for your forgiveness, to cleanse you of your sin. Weary Christian, I'll speak to you. How do you cleanse your guilty conscience and continue to draw near to God? By taking on Jesus' sacrifice for you. His death for you. Day after day, day in day, to cleanse your conscience. And so for all of us, how do we take on Jesus' sacrifice uh, for us, for me? You simply ask God that it would be the case. You pray to him, you speak to him, you ask for forgiveness and you ask for the forgiveness based on Jesus' death for you, his blood to cover you so that you can have forgiveness. Without blood, there cannot be forgiveness. With Jesus' blood, there can be eternal redemption. Now, quickly to finish, what does it look like to live with God now, now that Jesus has gained us access to him? There's lots we could camp out on and chill here for, but just two things I noticed from the passage. First, in verse 14, holiness and service. Uh, At the end, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So holiness first. We've been cleansed from acts that lead to death, cleansed of our sin. How could we, why would we participate in those things any longer? It's not who we are. We're cleansed of that holiness and service. We gain access to God through Christ and now we serve at his temple, his body, the church. Christians gathered. We serve God by serving one another. Is your life with God characterised by a desire to grow in holiness and to serve. And second, right at the end, verse 28, waiting. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Is your life with God characterised by waiting? That doesn't mean idleness doesn't mean sitting on your hands waiting around doing nothing but no it means verse 14 growing in holiness serving and waiting being ready anticipating his return 
being found in him when he returns, being found appropriately in him, clean by his blood and his blood alone, coming to the cross each day. Now, did you come here with a guilty conscience tonight, feeling the weight of that? But more importantly, will you leave with a cleansed one? Only Jesus' sacrifice, once for all, can wash your sin away. Only Jesus' sacrifice, once for all, can cleanse your conscience. Only Jesus' sacrifice, once for all, can bring you to God. And so can I encourage you to take on his sacrifice as for you tonight? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the love that you've shown and the window that you've given us into your desires to forgive and to draw us near. We thank you um, most importantly for your sacrifice of your son, that you would love a wayward world so much as to send him, that we might have eternal life through him. Please help each and every one of us to rely on his death, his blood, to gain access to you and not our own efforts. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen.